Good morning. My name is Ivan Sprunk, one of your elders serving you here. And we're at the point in our worship service where we'll read God's word. Uh, today we'll be reading from the book of Romans. Uh, so you can find that in something in front of you there. Uh, Romans 8. And I'll be reading the first four verses again. That's Romans 8, 1 through 4. And as is our tradition, we'd ask that if you are physically able, that you would stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. Romans 8, starting at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. As recorded for us in Isaiah 40, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. Well, it is great to see real people in the sanctuary this Sunday, uh, not just pictures of you on chairs. Um, Again, thank you for those of you who are bearing with us and watching by Zoom or just listening to the audio. Uh, the computer that we run all this through crashed today, so uh, there's not the normal live stream. Uh, I know it feels inconvenient to be in the sanctuary with masks on. Uh, Isaac Shaw was reminding us that actually in India, not only do they have coronavirus right now, they have a plague of locusts. So uh, it's not quite as bad as it could be elsewhere. Um, Andrew Peterson's song, Is He Worthy, has a series of questions that have just seemed to come alive to me over the last three months in ways that they hadn't before. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Is all creation groaning? I think we've seen in all that's going on, we sense that brokenness. In fact, Romans 8.22 says all creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth. And in the midst of this brokenness, we're realizing things that were our security, that were our normalcy, are threatened or non-existent. Our school friends, the nature of our work, sports, income, all these things seem to have just been revealed to be way more insecure than we ever thought. And with that has come this, I think, myriad of emotions, anxiety, loneliness, fear, despair, loss of hope. Peterson's song continues with these questions, but do you know that all the dark st won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see all things made new? Is a new creation coming? As we look at Romans 8, for the next several weeks, probably the rest of the summer. I want us to look at it because it is a chapter about hope. It is a chapter that is one of the most beloved in all of Scripture. And yes, I know all of Scripture is God-breathed and useful, but if uh, you were sick, I don't think you'd want me reading from Leviticus in the hospital. You'd rather I read to you from Romans 8. There's parts that just come alive, and this is filled with massive truth about the full ramifications of the gospel for us as believers and as the church. And so this summer, we're going to hike up to the summit of Romans 8 
look down upon all of creation in our lives with this lens by which we can see and have hope in the midst of whatever the circumstances are. Because a vaccine, an election, nothing can bring hope or certainty like what God has promised for us and for his people. This brings real hope. It begins with there's no condemnation and it ends with there's no separation. These incredible proclamations that are true for us as a church. And so this summer we're going to to just soak ourselves in this truth, to drink deeply from the waters of what the gospel has done for us so that we can have hope and assurance and certainty no matter what goes on in the days ahead. So if you would, let me pray for us. Father, help us to really mine the riches of this passage, not just in a way that feeds our mind, but that actually allows our souls to drink deeply of your promises, that we will be able to access them and rest in them and believe them no matter what we face. Help us too, by the power of your spirit, to to better understand these words, that they would enable us to truly live with freedom. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. A pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, most of our troubles come from a failure to realize the truth in Romans 8.1. It's fascinating. As he, I mean, it's a pretty broad statement, but if, as we go through it, you're going to see a failure to truly get what he is teaching us in God's word here in this first verse can have a domino effect of troubling responses in our life. And so it's important for us to really understand what's going on. And you'll see that it begins with, there is therefore no no condemnation. So again, therefore means Paul's building on something, and he's really building on the first seven chapters. Uh, But in particular, I think he's building on chapters three through five, where he is telling us that salvation is through the death of Jesus. And he begins to explain not only how it is a it's accomplished, but begins to tell us what kind of difference that should make in our lives. And particularly in chapter 6, he says, now we should be dead to sin. We should be alive to serving God. And that because of grace, we've been set free. But then in chapter 7, Paul says this. This is at the end of chapter 7. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see my members See in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul is expressing, he said, okay, my heart's captured by the love of God, but there's this war that's waging on. And he said earlier, the things I want to do to love God and love my neighbor, I don't do those. And the things I want to stop doing, I keep doing those very things. And so he's feeling this war that's being waged inside his heart is captured by God but he keeps sinning he says what am I going to do in verse 24 wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so that I may serve the law of God with my mind but with my flesh I serve the law of sin so there's this new reality now we are in Christ so there's this freedom that we have and yet there's still war raging on so How do we fight this war? Romans 8 is going to help us to do that. So let's take some time and try to to unpack and understand better this first blessing. So the first blessing of our salvation is that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Here it's talking about that the penalty 
of our sin has been removed. That word condemnation is another way of saying that we are not judged. There is no judgment in Christ. In fact, the the positive side of that would be to say that we are justified. Listen to, to what Paul writes in Romans 5. This is beginning in verse 16. He says, The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. So in chapter 5, he's saying we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. In Adam, he sinned, and so all of us sinned. We got the guilt of his sin, but then, as you know, in our own lives, we began to show our own rebellious nature, and we sinned against God. For the judgment following one trespass, Adam's sin at the fall, brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the opposite of condemnation is justification. So no condemnation means that we are justified. And it is a legal declaration. God is saying you are innocent. And there will be no double jeopardy. God will not come back to you and say, hey, remember that sin? You're still held guilty for that. In Christ Jesus, by faith in Jesus, we are declared right before God. It doesn't mean we're sinless. It doesn't mean we don't have that battle going on that Paul talked about in Romans 7. That's Paul's experience as a believer, this war going on. I want to love God and love my neighbor, but I struggle to do that very thing. So Romans 5 is telling us we have been justified. Our salvation comes because of Jesus. In fact, at the end of Romans 8, Paul makes that clear as well in verse 33. He says, This, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who's going to bring an accusation of sin before God's people? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now there's this beautiful picture that Christ has justified us. So we cannot be condemned. That has radical implications for us. One author tells us this. If God finds nothing against us, it should set us free. But the problem is, so often our guilt makes us a driven people. Our guilt can make us try to work harder to earn other people's approval. I see it in my own life. Whether I feel like I've failed as a father or as a dad or as a pastor... Uh, It's one thing if I see it, but if you say it to me, then I have this natural instinct. I'm going to show you that I'm not a failure. And I will do whatever I have to to prove that I'm a good dad, a good father, a good pastor, a good friend. I will work to prove it to you so I can prove it to myself. And do you see the problem that has? Our guilt often motivates us and drives us to try to earn, to atone for our failures. And that doesn't make our relationships stronger. Because then it's this back and forth, I've failed, I've, I've been accepted, and, and it just undermines our relationships and our relationship with God. A failure to understand that we're forgiven can also make us really defensive. Because we don't want to admit where we're wrong. And so we try to, to put up defenses to, again, prove ourselves, and we forget that God accepts us, not based on what we have done. And when that happens, it can rob us of our joy. 
in worship, our confidence with God, it can make us want to run from him instead of run to him because we still think, I know he died for me, but you know, I'm just such a mess. I've got to improve myself before I can go before him. We have this deep sense of unworthiness, and so often that can actually lead to addictive behavior because we're trying to escape that sense of guilt and shame, and so we go to try to numb that pain, and then we get caught up in failure again. We lose our motivation to live a holy life, just no motivation to control ourselves. All these things can flow out of a failure to understand that we are justified, declared righteous in Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones again made this distinction, and and it might help you, because so often when we think about our sin, um, he says, our sin now, if you are in Christ, is not like just breaking a federal law or state law. Our sin now when we break it is like when we fail to love your, our spouse or our sister or brother or our parent. It, it's not a legal matter anymore. It's, you've sinned against love. There's this breach in the relationship. It, it's different. It has a different sense, a different feel. And now that we're in Christ, we legally are innocent before God. What an amazing thing. I don't know about you, but does the accuser whisper certain things that you've done? Sins of your past or present? You just hear him, but you can't be loved by God. You're not worthy. I mean, think about how King David, as the accuser whispers in his head, how can you be king? You adulterer, you murderer. Think about Peter. How can you be a leader of the church. You denied Jesus. We're going to sing Amazing Grace at the end of the service. John Newton, this amazing pastor that was haunted by the fact that he was a slave trader. What is it that Satan tries to whisper into your ear to paralyze you, to shame you, to guilt you into being able to live for him? There's this incredible proclamation, the first blessing of redemption applied to us is there's no condemnation or justification. But that's not all of it. That's not the the totality. So one way to think of this is chapter 8's like this multifaceted diamond. And you've probably seen those jewelers, you know, put on the little, the monocle and they look at the the diamond, and they can see what we can't see with our unaided eye. They see all the different facets of it and the different sides and the beauty of it. So as we look at the lens through, through that lens and look at Scripture, the first facet of this diamond of really union with Christ, of our salvation, is justification. But look at verse 2. We're going to see the second facet. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And here I think he's talking about not so much the Mosaic law of sin and death and and the the law of the spirit of Christ. I think he's talking and using law in this term really more as a a force or as a power. He's saying the the law of life, the spirit of God, the life has set you free in Jesus from the law of sin and death. See, we're going to see that the law couldn't do what we want it to. The law will never justify us. It will never sanctify us in itself. 
but the Spirit does. Just in the first verse, we see there is no penalty for sin. Now there is no power. See, the Spirit has set us free. But Paul will even say, but I don't always feel free. Because sin still fights. There's this war going on. But that's part of what he's saying. But now you are. Before you couldn't even desire to obey God. Remember he said, my inner delight is to obey the law of God. Before that wasn't even the case. The Spirit has given the ability to want to obey God. To love God. To love his neighbor. And he says, now you are free. And he has set us free. And it's a fulfillment of these Old Testament scriptures in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Where he says, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to write your law on my law on your heart. And then you're going to be able to, to remove your idols and walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, the spirit sets us free, not from the law completely, but from trying to obey the law to be loved or accepted. Now he sets us free to obey the law out of love in response to God's act for us. We're no longer in bondage. That's part of what he was saying in Romans 6. You're no longer slaves to sin, but you are slaves to righteousness. The penalty of sin has been removed. The power of sin has been removed. We're set free. But how does all that happen? Look at verse 3. It happened that God sent his own son For God did what the law couldn't do. The law was weakened by our flesh. The law can't save us. The law just reveals where we fall short. The law reveals the character of God, so it's good. I mean, we aren't to lie because God's a God of truth. We aren't to steal because God is a God of generosity. We're not to kill because God is the life giver. And as you go through all that, we see the character of God, and then we see where we fall short. So the law can't do that. So God did what the law couldn't he sent his own son this is like john three sixteen. for god so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life so he's sending his own son and this is where paul's getting pretty technical in his language in the likeness of sinful flesh so he's sending jesus in the incarnation that we talk about that's in john one he he took on a real body he was a real man Or in Philippians 2, where he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the very nature of a servant to the point of death. He became obedient to God. But it's not merely the incarnation when he's talking about sending him in the flesh. It's this idea of sacrifice as well. This is the same phrase in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Old Testament that's written in Greek. It's the same language that says he was sent as a sacrifice. See, God the Father so loved his people that he sent his son to die for us. The love of the Father sent the Son who then sent the Spirit to set us free. We see the work in the Trinity of God's redemption for his people. Our hope, our assurance is built on the majesty and the massiveness of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit accomplishing his purposes. This is no small statement that Paul's making. For he sent him, and I'm going to insert some words that I think help us understand this. So he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh in our incarnation to be our sacrifice for sin. 
He condemned our sin in Christ's flesh. See, the law brings condemnation for those who break it. But Jesus never broke the law. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law. And so Jesus should not have been condemned, but he took our condemnation, our wrath, the judgment that should be ours upon himself. Isaiah said it this way, the Lord laid on on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So he took our condemnation so we would no longer be condemned. He took our sin and God's wrath and we took his righteousness and God's adopting love for us. This great exchange, this double imputation of the righteousness of Christ and the sinfulness of man to Jesus. We see what God has done for us. He has liberated us and he has set us free. But to what end? Look at verse 4. So we see what he's done for us. There's no condemnation, so there's no penalty. There is freedom in the spirit, so there's no power to sin. We can now love God. We see how it was accomplished by God sending his son to take our condemnation. But towards what end? Verse 4, he says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus fulfills the righteous requirement of the law that we couldn't do, but how is it fulfilled in us? Well, what are we supposed to do? Does it say we are to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit? The spirit set us free now to live out the law of God, not to earn God's favor, but to respond out of love to him. And so it helps us that whenever we sin, we endeavor to frustrate the very aim and purpose of why Christ died for us. See, we were made to live and love and glorify him. And when we sin, we go against the very purpose for which we were made and the very purpose for which Christ rescued and redeemed us. Well, flip over if you have your Bibles or slide over if you have them in your electronic Bible to chapter 13. I think Paul's going to unpack for us a little bit of what it means to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus did it in his perfect obedience. But look what he says in Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The righteous, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, what we are called to do as we are freed by the Spirit, no longer in bondage, is to love. Verse 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. A lifestyle of love on the part of the Spirit is what it looks like to walk in freedom. Christians are the most free people in the world. At least they ought to be. Because we're not having to to do good to earn God's love. We are doing good because we are now free to do that, and that's what we were created for. We're living to be who we were actually made to be. The Lord laid on Christ our iniquity, that we could be free to live for him, to love others well the reason we can enjoy this assurance is because of God's work in us so what are some applications for us 
Well, the first one is assurance and hope. There is no condemnation. You are forever innocent before Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus, again, that's Paul's summary language of union with Christ, our our salvation. If you are in Christ, you're innocent. Nothing you've done, nothing you can do can separate you from God. I want you to hear that. And when the accuser comes and says, yeah, but what about this? You can tell him to shut up and go away because it has been paid in full by Christ. Now, another application is that we should be incredibly humble. If it's Christ's righteousness that has rescued us, who are we to stand in judgment over other people? Who are we to condemn other people? Who are we to cancel other people because of something they might say or do or believe? Thank God that in his mercy and his love for his people that he didn't do such to us, but he took the condemnation for us and poured it on Jesus. How humble are you? How quick are you to stand in judgment over other people for all sorts of things? There's no room for boasting or pride. And we see what happens particularly when people forget that they should have been condemned. When they forget that and they forget it's by Jesus, they become Pharisees. They begin to realize, oh, look how well I keep the law. And they've they've narrowed the law. It's not the fullness of what God wanted. Then they can judge other people. They're not keeping the law like me. So it should promote humility. It should promote hope and assurance. And lastly, it should provide overwhelming thanksgiving. If our view of justification does not point us and push us to live a life of worship, and we're misunderstanding what God is proclaiming over us. We need to understand, and you can see, therefore, how if we fail to grasp verse 1 and the implications that we are justified in Christ Jesus, all sorts of troubles are going to come our way. And so we need to anchor ourselves, root ourselves, drink deeply, whatever metaphor you want. We need to be clinging to this truth but not in a way that keeps us from walking in holiness because we we've seen that. Oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm safe in Christ, so it really doesn't matter what I do. Paul says, no, never. While sin increases, grace does increase, but we shouldn't keep sinning. Instead, we're free now to love. In fact, that's why we were saved. In order that we might walk in the Spirit, fulfilling the requirements of the law, which is love. Friends, my hope is that as we root ourselves and, and climb this mountain of the incredible ways God has redeemed us and understand how it's applied to us, that we would become some of the most loving people in the world. That the world would see us as a church and as individuals and catch a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. That they would know we are Christians by our love. That we would be able to love because we have been loved by Jesus, who was sent by the Father, who took our condemnation so that we could be free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this hope. 
the certainty that we are innocent. That you've declared us righteous, even though we aren't anywhere near perfect yet, that the war wages on. One of the ways we fight that war is by resting in our justification and the delighting in the the freedom from the bondage of sin that we can now love you and live for you. Lord, help us. Help us to not lose heart. Help us not become proud. Help us not to seek escape from you, but to run to you. And thank you that nothing can separate us from your love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.